Welcome to this clinical law briefing. My name is Robert Wheeler. I work in Southampton as a children's surgeon and clinical lawyer and hope this podcast concerning a legal aspect of clinical life will interest you. This briefing discusses when and whether minuscule risks should be disclosed when seeking a patient's consent for treatment. The foreseeable risks associated with clinical practice seem innumerable and when seeking a patient's consent for treatment we are faced daily with the prospect of trying to identify what we will and will not disclose. An obvious criterion for making this judgment is the frequency with which this risk occurs. Historically clinicians, notably surgeons, choose an arbitrary number perhaps 1% or 0.1% frequency of the risk crystallising below which they would not disclose the risk when seeking a patient's consent. At least 30 years ago, the common law guided us away from this practice, requiring us to disclose risks that will be seen as significant to the reasonable person in the position of the patient we are dealing with, providing no comment as to what magnitude of risk that reasonable person might regard as significant. In the Supreme Court's recent case in Montgomery, the current view was reiterated. The doctor must make the patient aware of any material risks, and that the test of materiality is, one, whether in the circumstances of the particular case a reasonable person in the patient's position would be likely to attach significance to the risk, or two, the doctor should be reasonably aware that the particular patient in front of them would be likely to attach significance to it. The clinical duty is of reasonable care. This indicates that no absolute duty is involved, and for that reason there is no requirement to disclose all risks. Material risks must, however, be disclosed. This is all very well, but does the court give illustrations as to the relevance of frequency? In a 2015 decision, the High Court considered the case of Mrs A, who conceived with the aid of in vitro fertilisation, and whose third trimester ultrasound scans revealed poor fetal growth. Following full-term delivery, it became obvious that the baby was severely disabled as a result of a balanced chromosomal translocation. Mrs A claimed that if she had known of the risk of chromosomal abnormality antenatally, she would have undergone amniocentesis, and, on confirming the presence of this translocation, would have terminated her pregnancy. The court was told that the actuarial antenatal risk of poor fetal growth in this baby's case, being due to a chromosomal anomaly, was in the order of 0.1%. The court found that a reasonable person in Mrs A's position would consider a risk of 0.1% as being negligible, theoretical or background, and would not have attached significance to it. Nonetheless, the court indicated that if the risk had been in the order of 1-3%, to it would have regarded this a risk that a reasonable person would have attached significance to, and thus regarded as material. In addition, the court noted that in her evidence, Mrs A attached no significance to the fact that, during her pregnancy, she ran a 1 in 1750 risk that she would be carrying a baby with Down syndrome. She refused investigations to exclude this diagnosis since she did not want to endanger her foetus by premature delivery. The court found that in the same way, Mrs A herself would not have considered a risk of 0.1% significant. 
The role of the particular patient's attitude to a risk in different circumstances is demonstrated by the Australian case of Marie Whitaker. She had suffered a penetrating injury to her eyeball as a child and considered herself disfigured by the subsequent appearance. Forty years later, she sought cosmetic surgery for a deformed globe. She was adamant that she would not have surgery if it entailed risk to her healthy contralateral eye, since she feared blindness. Assured there was none, she underwent surgery and sadly suffered sympathetic ophthalmia, where the sight of her healthy eye was severely damaged. The risk of sympathetic ophthalmia was 1 in 14,000, a minuscule risk. But the court held that the particular patient, Marie Whitaker, plainly attached significance to the risk of blindness that transpired in her non-operated eye and should have had this risk disclosed to her, irrespective of its rarity. Her case was decided in 1992 and remains good law. It can be seen that materiality is slowly taking shape. The courts, on behalf of the reasonable person in the patient's position, indicate that risks of 1-3% to would be regarded as material, but 0.1% risks are not. But when considering the particular patient in the context of the facts of her case, a 1 in 14,000 risk may be highly significant, and thus found to be material, necessary to disclose. If a patient voices fears about the possibility of a particular risk, irrespective of its frequency, it seems natural to disclose its existence. Mrs A gives no authority for the proposition that background, negligible or theoretical risks cannot be material. As Whitaker shows us, they can be. Such minuscule risks may be engaged as material risks in elective, non-therapeutic or cosmetic procedures where the option of no treatment or conservative non-surgical treatment is available. Do not discount the possibility that for a particular patient, even minuscule risks may need to be disclosed to ensure valid consent. I hope this was useful, but if you would prefer to read rather than to listen to me, by all means look at the Clinical Law website on the UHS webpage or type clinical law into a search engine.